Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word this morning. Uh, we pray that uh, as we have uh, declared your goodness to you and to one another through song, and your word tells us that uh, you inhabit the praises of your people, uh, that you gave us your attention as we poured out our hearts to you. So now, as we uh, hear your word, uh, the contents of your heart poured out to us, Lord, that we would grant you that same attention. Lord, sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews, uh, as Art uh, has mentioned, uh, was written to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrew believers who were in a unique position uh, at the time of the writing of this letter. Uh, and we know where they're at by what was written in the book itself. Uh, and there's a variety of ways you can look at uh, some of the summaries. And in preparing for this uh, morning, uh, one of the ways is by looking at a phrase that's repeated three times in our passage uh, this morning, which is the phrase, let us, uh, and then some kind of action following that. Uh, there are 12 such phrases of let us in 11 verses. I'll just read through them so you can kind of get an idea, a feel for what the author of Hebrews wants uh, his listeners to do. And you'll kind of get an idea of his heart for them and where they're at and where they're going. Uh, so the first time that phrase is mentioned is actually in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest uh, who has passed through the heavens, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast uh, our confession. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith in God. Hebrews 10, 22. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with true, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 23, the next verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The next verse, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. 
Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Uh, so in each one of these let us phrases, uh, the author is inviting uh, his hearers or his readers to join him uh, in continuing on in their journey. Uh, so the people that he's writing to are believers uh, from the author's perspective, uh, but they're in a, in a place of making a choice <laughs> of what they're going to do next. And the next step for them, the author doesn't want them to make by themselves. He wants them to join him in these next steps. Uh, th th uh, three of those steps are in our passage today, uh, where he's um, encouraging them uh, through uh, some sound logical uh, reasoning through the scriptures uh, to, to make some choices in their lives, some things that they need to do. Uh, and the thing that they needed to do last week, if you were here, was to, and this is where we're going to review a little bit of Art's sermon last week, uh, was to enter his rest. Um, but my, my first point in our three points is entering his rest is not done by our works. Entering his rest is not accomplished by our own works. Um, that was the whole point that he was making all the way up until this point was that uh, on the seventh day, God rested, and he rested when all the work was done. Uh, he worked, and then he rested. Did God need to rest? I don't think so, but he did so as an example and, and set a precedence that when the work is all done, then you can rest. Um, and this is going to be woven throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews with regard to Jesus being a high priest, which is going to be the theme of next week's sermon and the following sermons where the high priest uh, office that Jesus fulfilled uh, is different than any other high priest. All the other high priests, they served, and then they served, and then they had somebody else serve after them. Uh, Jesus served and then sat down because the work was done. <laughs> He's, he was a little different. Uh, when, when God was done with the work, there was no more work to do, and the only thing left to do was rest. Um, about nine uh, out of ten people need to be told to work, and about one out of ten people need to be told to rest. <laughs> You know which one you are, <laughs> right? I don't have to explain this to you. Um, I'll let you guess which one I was. Uh, I had this realization during this last year's vacation Bible school. Um, it was in the middle of vacation Bible school, which was a little uh, different this year than previous years. But I had the, the first time I've ever had this thought uh, was, I think I need a vacation. It's honestly, the first time I've ever honestly had that thought. And I was like, I, I need a break <laughs> from all of the things. Um, and so uh, it hasn't slowed down since VBS, just in case you're curious. Um, the, we're, we're setting new, new levels of chaos. The, the chaos meter is, is much bigger now than it was. Um, and he's speaking uh, to that one out of 10 in particular. He's speaking to everybody in general, but that one out of 10 really need to hear this. <laughs> Be diligent to enter the rest. He's, and he, he's not saying you need it. He's saying we need it. Notice how he phrases that. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Another way of putting it, as one pastor put it, is work hard to enter rest. Huh. <laughs> All right. How, how do we do that? It, it just means enjoying the finished work of God that he accomplished through Jesus. Again, this is just restating everything Art said last week. Uh, and then he tells us the danger of, of not doing that or what happens if we do that. And that's, again, a review from last week is falling like those who became an example of disobedience. So what they did was they fell. How did they fall uh, and become an example of disobedience? Who are they and what did they do? Uh, again, a brief recap. They are the children of Israel uh, who were just delivered out of Egypt. And God said, go into this land. And they're like, how about we don't? <laughs> I, basically, they didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. And because they didn't believe, even though they heard the word, they did not enjoy the rest. 
And uh, again, that's just a repeat of everything Art said last Sunday. Uh, but that danger uh, wasn't just a Jewish danger, like in the book of Hebrews here is being mentioned. This is something Paul mentions uh, to those in Galatia. In Galatians, uh, he mentions a similar kind of falling. There's a phrase that's even worked, it's a phrase that's worked our way into the English language. We call it falling from grace. Uh, and normally we say that's happened to somebody who is normally like has this high moral standard and then all of a sudden we find out the truth about them that they weren't this high moral standard person and they're like, oh, they've fallen from grace. And that's the exact opposite of what the scripture says. Um, let me read you the scripture and then you'll understand what I'm saying here. So it's uh, Galatians 5 verse 4. He says, uh, for those who were trying to be uh, taking on Jewish customs and Jewish rituals and trying to fulfill the Jewish law in order to be accepted by God, he says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So if you're trying to earn your way into acceptability to God, you're fallen, and what you fell from is grace. The Hebrew writer is saying the exact same thing. These people who fell, they didn't fall from a standard that, of something they had to do. Like they didn't have to like storm a castle and slay a dragon and then they can be saved. They weren't the hero of their story. The dragon had been slain. <laughs> the hero was standing there. They were supposed to just get on the horse and ride off into the sunset. That's, that was their role in the story, all right? They didn't have anything to do, but they refused <laughs> the salvation that was provided them. And they fell from, what they fell from was grace. That grace is what they, they missed. They heard the word. They didn't have the faith to receive the grace. But that temptation is, is a common one. It's, it's not an unusual one, and it's one that they were in in that particular moment. So I don't know if you're like me, where an invitation to rest is uh, needed right now in this particular season of your life. Um, my week has been long. The week ahead will be long. <laughs> and I was like, I'm preaching a sermon on rest. <laughs> I really hope nobody asks me how I've been sleeping. <laughs> the reason why we need to enter his rest is because there's no rest for those of us who are trying to work our way into acceptability to God. And that's where we can pick up where our officially left off in verse 12. Verse 12, notice how it starts. Four. That means he's going to explain <laughs> why this other part was there. That's why I wanted to cover verse 11, so I wouldn't just start with four <laughs> as the first word of our, our text. And so now he's going to explain why, why we need this grace that's accessible only by faith and not by works. He gives us two reasons. Uh, it's God's word and God as judge, uh, why we need God's grace. Uh, notice what verse 12 says again. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, uh, the Word of God here has three descriptions given to it. Uh, the first description is a personification of sorts. It's saying the Word of God is living and powerful. Uh, that's not something you describe an object as. Uh, that's something you describe as something that's you know, sentient. It knows what it's doing. It's thinking for itself, right? Living and powerful. Uh, that means, in one sense, the, the Word of God has a, a mind of its own and is able to live out a life of its own in the way that it wants to because it's powerful, then it's not just personified, it's objectified, if you would. It's described as an object. Notice the object he describes it as sharper than any two-edged sword. And so uh, a double-edged sword cuts both ways, but it's, he's saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to be even sharper than that, and he, he gets into the ability of this two-edged sword. What is it able to do? Uh, it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is, and this is where it's, this object of a sword is personified. It's given characteristics of a person, 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, that's pretty, I, I don't know if you've got anything in your collection of sharp things <laughs> that can quite do that. Uh, you know, that, that's able to divide between these things that are so close together. Notice the, the kinds of things that the word of God is able to divide and discern the difference between. It's able to divide, again, between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, uh, between thoughts and the intents of hearts. Uh, I for sure don't know your thoughts or your intents. <laughs> and I only sometimes am vaguely aware of my own. <laughs> right? Uh, Self-awareness is not a strong suit of mine, hence that thought of, hey, I think I probably need a vacation. <laughs> That's a, there should be a red flag for anybody who knows me. I'm like, hey, yeah, mm -hmm, it's probably way overdue. Um, but God's word has the ability to do heart work greater than anything or anyone, including you. If you think you know you, spend some time in God's word and let me know if you get to know you better. <laughs> Here's the reason why. Because God's word is able to sort out a thought that you have and something very close to a thought, an intention that you have. Sometimes I'm not sure if I have a thought because it was an intention <laughs> or I have an intention because I had a thought. <laughs> I don't know where that line's at always. God's word knows where that line is at. God's word, its ability to know exactly why you're doing what you're doing is why we can never meet the standard that God has for righteousness. If you're trying to earn righteousness to be right before God, it has to be right not on the outside observable sphere. It has to be right on the thought and intent level of the heart. And if you feel unqualified, then you feel correctly. <laughs> That's where we're all at. That's the whole point of why Jesus was sent. If righteousness could be attained by keeping the law, Christ died in vain, says Paul. But Christ came and he died. That's what God thinks about each one of us. <laughs> Is that they're bad enough, no one, would, no one would be saved. I need to go and save them. And now what we're being encouraged to do is to reach out to Jesus and to rest in the work that he's done. But the, if that wasn't enough for God's word to have that work in our heart to be able to show us where and how often we fall, and this is something, by the way, that as you mature as a believer, is it's ongoing. There's not a point where you're like, okay, I finally fully understand myself as a believer. I have read the Bible once through, and now I understand it all, and I understand where I'm at in relationship to God. No. Uh, it's an ongoing work. Uh, quick illustration. Uh, if you have teeth and they're all messed up, there's two ways to move them to make them not all messed up. You can go see an orthodontist, and they can put braces on there, and it's an ongoing work where they slowly and painfully, and year after year, move your teeth into the spot they're supposed to be, right? It's slow process on purpose. Because the other way is you can go see somebody who can punch really hard, and you can just <laughs> do all the work at the same time. <laughs> That's not as pleasant. <laughs> as painful and as slow as the other process is, it's preferable. <laughs> And the work of sanctification that God's word has in your life is like braces. <laughs> I'm like, all right, we're going to hook this guy up to here. We're going to put some rubber bands over here, and we're going to start pulling. <laughs> That's not right. We're going to make it right. We're going to move it to, to make it become right. And, and like a good orthodontist, God, through his word, is constantly putting his finger on things. And you're just like, oh, I'm glad we're done with that. And God's like, yeah, me too. We're moving on to this over here. <laughs> like, Oh my goodness, I never knew that was there. I, I, if you're a mature believer, you, you can amen this. Is I didn't know that I struggled with certain sins until I came to a certain stage in life, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I have anger issues. I've, I've never been bigger than I am now. It was never safe for me to have anger issues in high school. <laughs> um, but as a parent, my kids have an ability to draw out this sin in my life that I never knew was there. 
And I'm just like, now I'm the big scary person, only to my kids, because you know, they're only gonna get up to here. So but that that's always been there. That's never not been there. But through the process of time and through the work of God's word, he's revealed that it's there. If you are a child of God, that should be happening. If that happened this last week, congratulations, you're a child of God. <laughs> if, if that sounds unfamiliar, then you should question that. When was the last time God spoke to me about something he wanted to deal with in my life? And why didn't I, I let him do that work? God's word will have its work. Its ability uh, is unparalleled. I, I like the psalmist who says in uh, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That means it, it tells me where I am at right now, a lamp unto my feet. I can see where I'm at. <laughs> Lord, where am I at right now? His word is a lamp unto my feet. This is where you're at. And a light unto my path. This is where you need to go. Uh, the headlights on my car don't light up the entire road around the corner all the way to my final destination. But they do light up right in front of my car so I can see where I need to go next. And God's word may not give you the next 12 years of your life, but it will give you the next step you need to make in your walk with the Lord. Because his word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So God's word has its work and its way in us. And beyond that, if that weren't enough, the second point, the second reason um, why we need God's grace through faith to enter his rest uh, is given also there in verse 13. is because God is the judge. Notice how it describes him here in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh, I was going to change my three points. So my first main point is entering his rest is not by our works. I was just going to rephrase that to you can't. That was going to be the shorter first point is you can't. The second main point was going to be he can. The third main point is so let him. This is the summary of that point. If you feel... If you felt uncomfortable during the reading of that verse, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's a, a holy uncomfortableness. <laughs> Just quickly flash back to this last week. Would you be proud of every moment and the Lord of the universe standing right behind you, knowing the thoughts and intents of your heart? This is what he's saying. Notice how he describes him here. First, he sees everyone. There's no creature hidden from his sight. This is not like when you go to work and there's that one employee who only works hard when the boss is around. This is not like that. He's there always. There's not one creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him. And the most sobering part about all of it is the him is the one to whom we must give an account. We will all answer to him someday. And it will either be on the basis of our works or his. I, I don't want them to be on the basis of my works. I, I, don't, have, I don't have a week I don't have a day, I don't have an hour where I scraped it all together and I'm like, look at just this and that would be good enough. I don't have that. Jesus didn't only have that hour, he had a whole life. From God's view and according to God's standard, we have not kept his standard. We can't. This is why entering into his rest by faith or through faith by grace is necessary. The second point, again, the summarized version is if we can't, he can. 
Second longer point, if you're taking notes for the longer point, is we have Jesus who knows that we need grace. We have Jesus who knows that we need grace. Notice there in verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The author, he, he points to something that he's already pointed to before, earlier in chapter 2 uh, of Hebrews, is Jesus in a, in a role of high priest. And again, this theme is going to be developed over and over again throughout the book, so uh, we won't dive too deep into it now because we're going to get into it later. Um, but notice that first phrase again, seeing then that we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. The exhortation that he gives to that is, let us hold fast our confession. The confession is a Christian confession. It's a confession of who Jesus is and the work that he would do and how we're related to that. Um, the confession uh, is summarized quite well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is, in the Old Testament, the Bible promised that, that there would be a Savior who would save us from our sins by dying for our sins, being sinless himself. <laughs> That first promise, that first mention of that gospel is right at the beginning of the Bible. We covered it on a Wednesday night not that long ago in Genesis chapter 3. When God's pronouncing the judgment of Satan and Eve and Adam, in the judgment of Satan, God preaches the first gospel. He says he's going to send a, ser a serpent stomper <laughs> who is going to be the seed born of a woman which is not how that works unless there's a virgin birth involved. Hint, 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 hint. Jesus is already coming <laughs> from the beginning. And who that promised Savior would be is developed throughout the Old Testament, and that's what he's pointing to here, that Christ would die for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament promises with regard to Jesus. And he was buried and rose again on the third day, notice, according to the Scriptures. This wasn't new information. This was a fulfillment of old promises and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. He wasn't just raised up in a corner and nobody saw him. Uh, the next verse there in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, he says, and he was seen by 500 others also, the greater part of whom are still around today. So when Paul wrote it, he's like, they're still around, you can go ask them. They saw not only Jesus crucified, but they also saw him alive before he ascended. That's the confession. The confession of Jesus as the savior of our souls, the high priest, not only just in what uh, the service he would perform, but also as the sacrifice. Again, themes that are developed throughout uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus not only was a better high priest, he was a better sacrifice. He was kind of doing it all himself. <laughs> and it's a good thing he did because he was the only one who could do it all himself. So we see Jesus as high priest, but he's not just up there. We see him as down here. He's passed through the heavens not only has he passed through the heavens, when he sees us, he sees us as somebody who's gone through what we're going through. Uh, again, if you had a hard day at work or a hard week at work, and then you talk to somebody else and they've had a similar week, they're like, I know. <laughs> I know how you feel right now. It's been a long whatever. <laughs> and it's because they've been where you're at and Jesus, according to this verse, has been, at least in part, where we're at. Because it says he's a high priest. He, he states it in the double negative, right? Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What he's saying is we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And the, the, the particular weaknesses he's talking about, he describes as temptations. He says, but was, in all points, tempted as we are. 
Jesus was tempted on multiple occasions. Uh, the times that are the clearest uh, are uh, right before he went and started his ministry, uh, his public ministry. So he didn't come out of the wombs, you know, performing miracles. Uh, there was a, a time and a place for him to start serving. And just after his public baptism into ministry, where uh, after his baptism, God opened up the heavens and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, the spirit descending upon him, the very first thing Jesus did in order to uh, you know, save the world and disciple the nations was to go into the desert by himself. <laughs> That's an odd first step. I would, I would assume maybe go to the leading seminary of Jerusalem at the time, get all the smartest people you can, get some printing presses involved and start you know, cranking out flyers, come meet the savior of the world. Like I would have done it differently, which is why I wasn't in, put in charge of it. <laughs> um, the first thing that we're told happened is described in, I love how Matthew describes it, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There are two sermons I, I want to preach out of that verse someday. Uh, again, the verse, it says, uh, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first sermon I want to preach uh, from that is Spirit-led temptation, because that, that sounds like a sermon I want to hear. Um, like, what? That doesn't sound right. But that's what the verse is saying. Jesus was led by the Spirit <laughs> to be tempted by the devil. Like, All right. This seems like a bad plan. <laughs> hey, God, what's on the agenda today? Well, <laughs> uh, the second one is has to do with the last part of the verse, and it's God's use of the devil. That's also a sermon I would like to hear, is God was using the devil. The devil was doing God's work somehow by tempting Jesus which seems weird, right? <laughs> okay, just not me. I would just want to throw that out there. Again, the verse, it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word tempted can be translated one of two ways, and often is translated tempted. Other times it's translated tested. And it really matters on which side you're looking at it. Right? You've got the uh, home team side and the visitor side. Uh, the home team, it's a test that we want you to pass. The visiting team, it's a temptation that we want you to fail. The experience is the same. <laughs> and so where Adam and Eve specifically fell, Jesus specifically won. Adam and Eve in a garden full of great fruit that they could have any of at any point in time. They could eat whatever they want, whenever they want it. Just one thing they couldn't eat. Jesus fasted 40 days, 40 nights, very hungry, no food. Devil, turn this rock into a loaf of bread and eat. That seems reasonable. <laughs> Who would say no to that? <laughs> In the exact opposite circumstances, and point by point where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus succeeded. And so Jesus was tempted. He was tempted to do, in part, what God wanted, just not in God's way. And when he was tempted, he always responded with the word of God. <laughs> and when the temptation was concluded, uh, Luke, describing the same experience in Luke chapter 4, it says at the end of all of that, uh, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but not every temptation comes at every moment in time. It seems like they always come at the very worst time. <laughs> like if you had the power to turn rocks into bread, you would not be tempted to do that after finishing eating like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You'd be like, I'll pass. <laughs> but had you not eaten for the last 40 days, and then somebody's like, hey, you have this power to turn rocks into bread, opportune time, <laughs> right? It's the right time to make a wrong choice. I'm not sure if you've ever tried going shopping for food when you were hungry. I've bought things I knew I didn't like because it looked good. <laughs> I knew I didn't like it. It was like some kind of candy. I'm like, I hate this candy, but I, right now I'm just so hungry. It looks good. I had to throw it away because I was like, why did I buy this? <laughs> it's because I bought it when I was hungry. <laughs> I was tempted by things I knew I didn't like because where I was at. It was an opportune time to buy something I didn't need, something I didn't like. 
The devil came at opportune times in Jesus' life. And that's when the temptation came. And when the temptation came, Jesus overcame it. So he knows what it's like to be met with a temptation to do the wrong thing at the right time. And, and I'm sure you've also noticed this about temptation. The, the longer you hold out on the temptation, the harder it gets. So you wait. You know, maybe you're trying to cut sugar out of your diet or just cut back on certain things, and you, you, wait a, a, you, know, you make it two or three days, and then you, you slip up, you have some in a coffee or something, and then you, you make it a little bit longer, and the, the longer you wait, the harder it is to, to resist the temptation because it's been so long. Jesus never gave in to the temptation. The weight of that increases, not decreases. Opportune times come, and at the end of that, Jesus and his human nature were told, again, back in um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, this is how he concludes that uh, account of Jesus' temptation. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. That would be a very important angel assignment if you were an angel. Hey, Jesus was just tempted. Go, <laughs> go minister to him. Oh, don't mess this one up. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it would seem that at particular points in Jesus' life, angels came and ministered to him. The other time is when Jesus, right before he was about to go to the cross, he was praying. Perhaps you remember the prayer. Lord, if there's any other way. Perhaps you prayed that prayer this week. <laughs> Lord, if there's any other way. Maybe this morning before you even came. Lord, if there's any other way. And what that's a confession of is, Lord, I know what your will is, and I have a different will. Please, Lord, can we do something different? But Jesus didn't conclude his prayer there. He concluded his prayer with, nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. Do you know how God answered that prayer? We're told in uh, Luke, uh, I think it's yeah, chapter 22, verse 42 and 43. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then, verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Sound familiar? <laughs> really tempted to not do what you want me to do right now, Lord. <laughs> I feel like I might be crucified, <laughs> beaten, <laughs> like not just figuratively. <laughs> Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, to not do what God wants you to do. In fact, we have part of his prayer life, part of Jesus' prayer life that's recorded for us is him asking God to to not do the thing that God asked them to do. Like that's, that's how transparent with his humanness he's given to us. His temptation enables him to help us. Again, if you've been tracking with us through Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 18 says this point by point. Hebrews 2 verse 18, for in that he himself also suffered being tempted, he's also able, uh, he's also, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You don't have to be alone in your temptation. And you're never alone in your temptation. In fact, Paul writing to uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, and that with the temptation, God provides the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Think about that the next time you're in the middle of a temptation. Lord, I see the temptation. You've provided the temptation. Now I'm looking for the provision of the way of escape. <laughs> if you're a believer, that's the promise you have. I promise you will be tempted and that with every temptation will be provided the way of escape. There's a path of obedience every time. Now, God knows that we're sinners, so there's another promise he gives us in Scripture, 1 John 1, 9. For when we fall, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. At the precise moment, we're faithless and unjust. He is both faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But just remember, the next time you're in that temptation, don't think that he has no idea what you're going through. He's got more than just an idea of what you're going through. He's able to help you. He provides a way of escape. Unlike us, however, he had never given in to a single temptation. Notice how verse 15 ends, yet without sin. That in particular qualified him to be our sacrifice, sinless, to be our great high priest. So not only is he sympathetic toward, our, toward us, but he, he's also sinless and able to help us. You know those superhero moments where there's like somebody hanging on a building and they reach down and grab somebody before they fall too? The only reason why the holding the hands mean anything here is because this hand is on something solid. <laughs> if we jump out of a plane together and we're holding hands, <laughs> I'm glad you're with me. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> My other hand is not on anything. <laughs> We are as able to save ourselves as a person who's jumped out of a plane without a parachute is able to save themselves, and we're unable to help anybody else because we're all without parachutes <laughs> falling together. It's only because that superhero has his hand on something sure, because he's sinless, that the other hand in our hand is meaningful to us. And the scripture again and again is saying, don't trust in your grip on the building, trust in his You've already dropped. You're, you're, you're falling. Now don't fall from grace. So if we can't and he can, the conclusion is obvious, <laughs> right? What should we do with all of this information? Well, let us hear the author of Hebrews, verse 16. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come to the throne of grace. Notice that Jesus, even though he's God, and earlier we saw him sitting on a throne to judge the contents of our heart, the works of our life, the thoughts and intents, though he could sit on a, a throne of judgment, right now he chooses for you and I to sit on a throne of grace. Jesus sits on a throne of grace, and he tells us how we're supposed to come, to come boldly to that throne of grace. I have a, an office at my work across the street, and uh, not too many people come into that office boldly, new hires, people I have to have conversations with. If you're a boss, you understand. If you have a boss, you also understand. <laughs> not, not many people come into that office boldly, but my kids sometimes will come visit me, and they're like, hey, Dad, here I am. Can I sit on your lap? Can I color on your calendar? On the <laughs> No. <laughs> they come boldly because there's a relationship that we have. They are confident in my love for them. We can come boldly not because we earned it or deserve it. We can come boldly because the throne is not a throne of judgment but of grace. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tells us what we should expect to find and get when we get there, when we come to this throne of grace. Come to obtain and find mercy and grace. Notice what he says again there in verse 16. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we, we, that we, may obtain mercy and find grace. That's what we need. His mercies are new every morning. Do you know why? Because every morning we need his mercies to be new. His grace is sufficient for each one of us. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that his strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. And uh, the Christian life is a continual discovery of exactly how weak you are. It's not a very self-motivational 
speech. <laughs> um, but if you think about it, if God's strengths are on display in my weaknesses, the more weaknesses I have, the more opportunity God has to demonstrate his strength. I should be like a spiritual Superman then, because I came dead. <laughs> That's the strength I came with, the same as a dead person, which is very little to none. Unless they're twitchy still, I don't know. But the, the, the point is, when we come, that's what we should be looking for. You don't go to God saying, God, I demand justice, unless you, unless you want to spend eternity apart from him. We come to God to obtain and to find mercy and grace. Jesus has mercy and grace for you. He built a whole throne out of grace. If you come, <laughs> come sit on his lap, like, can I have some more grace, please? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. He tells us when to come. The last phrase, come for help in time of need. Well, that's great. If I said, hey, if you ever need help moving anything, just let me know. And then when I hear you're moving, I'm like, oh, I'm unavailable. <laughs> but I need you. <laughs> I'm unavailable. <laughs> How come you're always unavailable when I need help? I don't know. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of that. Jesus is always available to provide the help in time of need. Now, here's, here's the thing. God made you to need him. God made us needy. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but maybe uh, you already have the hunger pains for lunch coming upon you. <laughs> God made us to need food. If you wait long enough, you'll get thirsty. He made us to need liquid, water. He made us to need physical rest. If you work hard enough, long enough, you'll just eventually pass out. I watched the video of this little kid. He's sitting in the, you know, a car seat, and his dad's driving him somewhere, and they're doing a little video, and he's just doing everything he can to stay awake. And the dad's like, how you doing, buddy? He's like, I'm okay. <laughs> Clearly, he's not okay, but he's like, I'm okay. <laughs> and he's like, you doing all right? Like, yeah. You know, bud, it's okay if you, if you want. You can go to sleep. And immediately, he's just like, <laughs> gone. <laughs> if you've been there, you understand where you're like, I remember getting ready for bed, but I don't actually remember putting my head down. I was just out. You, you remember that feeling once you woke up of, the, the stark contrast difference between not rested and rest. Or if you played sports, I, I did long distance running and uh, we had a shirt that said, I run to make water taste better. <laughs> <laughs> and you would go for a long run and like, man, <laughs> when you're thirsty and you get that water, just like, wow, it does taste better. <laughs> or if you've ever fasted or just, you know, we're really hungry and you finally were able to eat something. The, the satisfaction there. God has given us those needs so that we would have an idea of what it's like to have life without him and to have an idea of what it's like to have life with him. Each one of those things Jesus picked up on throughout the scriptures to remind us that our ultimate hunger, thirst, and rest come from him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Jesus again said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus again said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Imagine always being hungry, always being thirsty, always being tired. Jesus is there, <laughs> and like, I have what you need. I made you to need me. This is not new information. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam in the garden. Perfect man, perfect world. God made Adam with a need that only he could satisfy. Right? Hey, Adam, I've got a job for you. Name all the animals. He's naming all the animals. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Kangaroo, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus. One and two, one and two, one and Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> The conclusion of that naming section, it says, and he didn't find a helper comparable to himself. 
It's like God had ulterior motives. <laughs> He's like, hey, Adam, you notice something? You have a need that you can't meet. You have a need that only I can meet. The perfect man, perfect world, no sin. God made man to need God. When your life is right on, perfect in your walk with the Lord, you will still need God. It's not like I finally have attained everything I need. I don't even need God. That will never come. You are in the perfect place when you are fully dependent on God. You will never graduate from that. Adam was made that way before the fall. That's what we're trying to get back to, is dependence upon God. Acknowledging that there's a hunger in our soul, that there's a thirst in our soul, that our souls are tired and weary, and there's only rest and satisfaction in him. Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, uh, verse 6, exhorts, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is near this morning. He, we can't, he can. So let him. Those are my three points. We can't, he can. Let him. Well, if you want to come up and close this in a song, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, I would have never in a million years written the words that I should be allowed to come boldly to your throne. And yet, you and your word not only tell us to come boldly to your throne, but to do so to find mercy and grace, to do so in a time of need, to do so to find the help that we need, and what we need is nothing less than you. Father, we're, we're so thankful to have you. We're so thankful for the work that you accomplished in and through your son, because it's a work we could not do. I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself this morning, Lord, that we would do what has been asked of us by the author of Hebrews, that we would come boldly to your throne of grace. I pray as we sing this song, Lord, that it would be a declaration of our hearts to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.